Well, here we talk about no perfect people allowed, and if no perfect people allowed, then that means that this is an imperfect family, so we're messy. How many of you have thought about hugs recently? What's in a hug? Warmth, touch, embrace. Ever thought about how important hugs are? As a matter of fact, recent research shows that hugs are extremely important, even during the flu season. So I know most of us, uh, most of us during the flu season were like this to people, right? We kind of got this going on, or you got Germex in your pocket, so you hug somebody and you're like, and you're kind of bathing in Germex so you don't get the flu. But the hugs are actually important. As a matter of fact, it says the more that we hug or the more uh, socially connected that we are, the more healthy we are. And, um, and so this is, this morning I want to, share just a little bit about with you how important hugs are and what embrace is and the idea of a family that we are to come together and to embrace one another and to love each other. Even though there's those moments where you just saw the little kids that they're kind of going at it and sharing a little extra love with each other, that there are those moments where in a family, in messiness, we do have to kind of go at it and kind of slug it out a little bit and to kind of share our feelings, but there's no better place to do that than the safety and freedom of a family, because we know that we can share those things and be vulnerable and be real in those moments and then walk away as a family because we're built on the foundation together and we're moving together in the same direction. We have a, a messy family. Hugs are extremely important. As a matter of fact, even recently there was research where over 270 people were injected with the common cold uh, disease, whatever you want to call it. They were injected with it. And so once that injected, and they were based upon, of that 270, half said that they were socially connected, that they have solid relationships, friendships, family, and so they're kind of healthy in that way. And the other half of that said, hey, they were pretty isolated. So interestingly enough, the half that were isolated got sick. The half that were not isolated had healthy family connections and friendships. Actually, they didn't get as sick. If they did get sick, they didn't get as sick. And they said that they had less snot than the other people. So as one author put it, it proves the fact that unfriendly people are snottier than the rest of us. So hug one another, be friends, embrace. It's an important thing. What's in a hug? It's an embrace. And we embrace for different reasons. In our family, I grew up, we didn't really hug a whole lot. I mean, we knew my, knew my parents loved me, but it just wasn't something that we did. And then I met Becky, and there was a hug for every situation. You know, every scenario we were hugging, and I was kind of like doing this. Even at church, I know many of you don't even drink coffee, but you hold coffee because you're afraid somebody might hug you. And so you've got a coffee cup, and that's like the whole thing like this. You're verbally saying, you can get this close, but don't get any closer. And um, so that's kind of the, the idea of embracing kind of breaks down some barriers. So you ever have those moments where you're just broken, and, uh, you know, your child comes up to you and they are broken. There's not even words that they can't even express in that brokenness. And they just come to you and they just need a hug. And they put their, their head on your chest and they just begin to weep and they begin to sob. And you just hold them. And one of the things about an embrace is it expresses words that are inexpressible. So in that moment when someone needs an embrace, they come to you and they may not even be able to express the depth of their pain. They may not be able to even express the, the overwhelming joy that's within inside of them, but they know that in an embrace, the inexpressible can be expressed. And so that when someone comes to you and they need an embrace, that that's a part of that. And so, again, one of the things that I've learned 
over the years as a part of the embrace, especially in those moments where someone comes and you just kind of wrap their arms around you, they hold you, and that there's that natural tendency, especially maybe for guys or someone like me, is that you kind of put them back and you want to kind of push back a little bit after a little bit because you want to solve the problem. In reality, what needs to happen is not a setting back to solve the problem, but just to continue to let the embrace linger because that is there's not a problem that necessarily needs to be solved, but an embrace that expresses what words can express. And so for us as a family, as a church family, what does it mean for us to love one another in such a way that we embrace one another? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. And here Peter is talking about what it means to suffer as a follower of Jesus and what does it look like to be in a family where there's, there's messiness and that this idea of embracing and caring for one another and loving one another and that there's those times of, of deep grief and then there's those times of joy and, and every time in between, in between and an opportunity for us to, to do life with someone means to join with them and to embrace them in those moments. And so what does it look like for us as a family to embrace? Over the last few weeks, we've talked about being an imperfect family. And the very first characteristic of us being an imperfect family is that we have a need to belong. All of us have a need to belong to something bigger than ourselves. And we see in a culture where more people are connected via social media that we're actually less connected on good, solid relationships together. And so that there's even more of a need for us to belong together. And that belonging So even an imperfect church family like this, the belonging solves the isolation problem for us. That if you get into church family and you begin to do life with people, it solves that the isolation problem that we have a tendency to to see in our culture today. The other part, and that's not belonging, but the other part of being a part of an imperfect family is we see parents. And parents, our role is to train our children to pass on wisdom, to pass on principles and guidance and truth to them so that they can get to a point of maturity, right? Because as we talked about last week, we don't need failure to launch. We want our kids to be gone and uh, enjoy life because that's where they experience the full life that God has for them is outside of our household, but with us being a safety net. And so the same is true within the family here is that as parents, the pastors, the teachers, the instructors are there training and that as children, we are to be receiving or rejecting that training. And so that that is what grows us up into maturity so that we can walk out and do life and do adulting well as we receive the training that God has for us and walk in the ways that God would want us to be able to walk. And this morning, we're moving past just belonging and and, and receiving training, but to this idea of embracing that a family can embrace, that even in the darkest of times that we can just, even if words are not even enough to express it, that we can embrace one another and walk with one another in the darkness, but also in the joy. So again, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to First Peter chapter 3. Let's look at verse 8. It says this, Finally, all of you be like-minded. Now think about that. Every one of you that came into this this morning are, are not like-minded. You even some of you, you, if you brought your Bibles, you have different translations. And so this idea of, of being like-minded is an interesting thing. We'll talk a little bit more about here in a second. But to be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and be humble. So what does it mean then to be like-minded? If all of us Come in here and we have different backgrounds, different experiences. Some of you grew up in church. Some of you didn't grow up in church. Some of you grew up in one type of a church setting and different types of things and all that. And so now we're here all together as this imperfect family. What does it mean for us then to be like-minded? 
Well, Peter and the other teachers of the New Testament would say to be like-minded means that we are built upon, this family is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so that that's our foundation, that we are like-minded. So there are going to be moments that we may disagree over some different things. Like you may disagree over the color of the carpet. You may disagree over when Jesus is returning. You may disagree over some different things that as we read through Scripture, based on where we've come from and based on where we're at in our journey, we may disagree over some stuff. But that the foundation for this family, that if there's a plaque, you know, by the dining room table or whatever, that you would always see, you would say, we are built upon Jesus Christ and nothing less. So that that's our like-minded, that's our goal, is, is that we believe that life is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's our like-mindedness. That's the, the part that we're going to, if we're going to agree on anything, this is the one thing, that Jesus gives life through his death on the cross and his resurrection. Okay? That that's the like-mindedness. The other part that he talks about is not just being like-minded, but to be sympathetic. To, to literally jump into someone's skin and to do life for them or with them, to feel with them. You've heard the phrase, we're going to walk in someone else's shoes. This is that idea of I'm going to walk in their shoes. I'm going to try as best I can to sympathize with them and to take their burdens upon myself. I'm going to help carry their burdens. Now, sometimes that's because you've walked that road, and so you have some wisdom to share. You have some part of that friendship. You're able to walk through that and offer some advice or counsel or wisdom. Maybe you haven't, but because of your friendship, You're that 2 a.m. friend that someone can call and say, this is my life in this moment, and it stinks. Okay, that's a biblical term. Stinks. My life stinks in this moment. It is ultra messy and smelly, and I don't know if I can do this anymore. I don't know if I have a solution. I don't know if I have enough wisdom. I don't know if I can get out of this. And you call that person or persons, and they say, well, let's walk with you through this. This is what it means to... Be sympathetic. This is a good idea of what friendship means, is that you can call someone and be real with them, and they say, instead of turning away and saying, "Mm, yeah, that's the thing that ends our friendship, they say, "Mm, that's the thing. I'm going to embrace you in this, and I'm going to walk with you in the midst of this, this dark time, this difficult time for you to be sympathetic, that you can rejoice when someone, when they need to rejoice. That you can weep with someone when they're weeping. The other part of this is this idea of loving one another. And so as you see on the notes up here on the screen, that's a little bit different than maybe normal, that you have like-minded and sympathetic and then love one another. That there's literally, as Peter's using a grammatical thing, a poetic thing called a chiasm. And so he's building, he's using these terms and he's pointing us in a direction. He's saying, listen, as a church family, if we're like-minded and if we're sympathetic, then that's going to lead us to loving one another. And so that's the fruits of this being like-minded and sympathetic. We're moving in this place. And so loving one another is actually what should identify us as a church family. That as people look at us as a church family, they're going to go, listen, that group, they are messy, they are whatever, but I know one thing. They love each other. Because of the way that they're sympathetic for each other. Because there may be times where they have fights, but whenever they fight, whenever they're done, they walk out and they say, hey, listen, our mission is Jesus Christ. And I've seen them walk with other people and seen them walk in the mess of real life. 
And they just don't pretend on Sunday morning, hey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. But they're like, hey, this is who I am and this is where I'm at. And we walk together. And because of that, we love each other deeply as we flesh out the grace of Jesus Christ. As the New Testament talks about us growing in grace, that actually as the longer we are alive, the longer we do this Christian life thing, the more amazing God's grace is to us because we realize really truly how messy and how stinky and how stinchy our sin is that we're continually trying to work out and flesh out and not struggle with anymore. But we realize, hey, that we still need people to walk with us and we begin to love each other and we love well. And then so Peter then comes back and he says, look, you've been like-minded, you're sympathetic, you love one another. The other piece of this is another description of sympathetic is compassion, that we're to be compassionate with one another, literally good guts. So I know some of you do the yogurt thing, right, because you want good guts. The Hebrews talked about the compassion was to have a sense of feeling that your seed of emotions is in your gut. Have you ever had that little moment where you hear your stomach rumble and it goes, right? That's the good guts in you. Reminding you, every time you hear that, just remind I'm to be compassionate. That the butterflies that happen, you're compassionate toward one another. This, this good intentions toward one another. That, that you see someone and, and they do something and to realize that, hey, they're a family member and their intention is to do good, not to do harm. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, this idea of compassion, Jesus talks about it a couple of times. And there was one time where Jesus saw the people as he came across the sea. He saw the people and he looked upon them. He had compassion for them. He had good guts for them because they, they didn't even know who he was. He'd been teaching them for a little bit, and they began to get angry and upset because they didn't understand what he was teaching and who he was, but he had compassion on them. Also, you see the story of the prodigal son, that the father was standing on the porch waiting for the son to come back, and he was continually on the porch with the eyesight of, I know and I want and I desire for my son who's been in a relationship with me to come home and that, that that very moment that he's on the porch and he sees the sun on the horizon, he has compassion and he runs to his son. Where the father could have not had compassion. He could have said, no, but he had compassion and he ran to him. The other time that Jesus uses this term of compassion is the story of the Good Samaritan. That the religious people, the people that knew the truth better than anyone, looked at the man that was in need and walked by him. But the Good Samaritan, the person that was the least of these, the least religious, the least clean, the least whatever, looked at the person and had good intentions, had compassion on him, and did actually what the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches, got down into the mess and was a part of the story of healing for this person, did for him what no one else would do, that that's our call, to have compassion. And again, because the world is looking and saying, hey, you say that you're a Christian, but will you do what no one else will do? Will you jump into my mess and do what no one else will do? Will you love me in a way that moves me to a place where I'm open to the good news of Jesus Christ? by the way that we love and by the way that we do church. The other idea that I hear about the description of the family is humble, literally to have low-mindedness, that we are humble when we come to know that God is God and we're not, that it humbles ourselves, that we literally bow down. And so we even see Jesus say, he came to be served. No, he came to serve, not to be served. And so even one of the last things that Jesus did, he was with his disciples. And at the very moment when his disciples should have washed his feet, 
he got down on his knees and he washed their feet and said, I have come to serve you. That that is to be our posture as disciples of Jesus is to be humble in spirit and to not think ourselves better than anyone else or to arrived or have cleaned up or have received something to others, but to literally wash the feet of other people. Have you ever been a part of a foot washing? It's not something we do a whole lot around here, but it is a humbling experience. Matter of fact, whenever Jesus' day, whenever they would have washed feet, they were stanky feet. Okay, They were stanky because most of the time they did not have shoes on. And so they're walking in the dirt and the mire and the stuff, and they had dust and they had dung on their feet. Dung is poo-poo, okay, and all the other stuff. And so you're walking and you got dust and doo-doo on your feet. And when you would walk into the house, the servant would be the one, the lowest servant of the house would be the one to wash the feet of the people when they would enter into the deal. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, this is the mindset. This is the posture of follow me is to not pursue who's going to be sitting next to Jesus up in the clouds and by the crown and get the crown and all that stuff. But you're to be here to consider yourself the lowliest of the low and to who can you serve and to wash the feet, to do the dirty work, to get messy, to do unto others what needs to be done. To have that spirit of being humble. What does it look like in a family like that if we were to love one another? When we embrace each other, in that moment we're saying, I want to, I'm expressing the inexpressible, and I want to think what you're thinking, and I want to feel what you're feeling. That we're, we're grabbing on and we're holding on with all that we've got for as long as it's necessary. That it may just be a quick hug. They're like, yes, but it may be a longer hug. And you're just kind of leaning there, hanging out and saying, I want to be here with you in this moment. One of the things for us as a family is that there, we, as we get into this idea of thinking and feeling and embracing, that there's some things that we should as a family have as distinctives or as core values. Now, one of the things about core values is I can tell you what you believe by your behavior. They put it like this. So if this is, this is a Baptist church, right? Yeah, okay. Glad you're all there. And so this is a Baptist church. And so if you've been in and around Baptist church stuff, there's some things that you're not supposed to do as Baptists. Okay, I don't know why that's what, you know, but we just kind of, that's what we're known for. I mean, I know why, but <clears throat> there's things that we're known for. And so one of those things is we don't foot function, okay? And so we don't dance or whatever. We're not, so we just don't do that thing for whatever. Maybe it's just because we're not good. I don't know. But we don't do it. Okay? And then there's this other thing that we're not supposed to do. But here, inevitably, I go to restaurants, and you show me what you believe by how you act in the restaurant. So I go into a restaurant quite often, and as you can tell, I go to the gym and the restaurant. Those are my two things. And so I go into restaurants, and as I go into the restaurant, I can tell what you believe by this certain thing that you think that we're not supposed to do by how you respond to being in my presence. Okay? And so I walk into a restaurant, and even this week it was... National Celebrate This Thing Day, and uh, some of you posted it and stuff, and so I went in, and so I was like, oh, I know what they believe, and uh, like, maybe they're not Baptists, I don't know, and so we, uh, new members class, here we come, and so we, I go, I walk in, and then I see you with this thing, and it's like, you don't know, have like a small one, you've got like a big one, like you can dive in, right? <laughs> it's like they've just removed the diving board, and I'm like, I didn't know, I should have brought my shorts, I can swim with you, you know? And uh, But you, in that moment, you tell me what you really believe. Because I'm not God. 
But if you struggle with being in my presence with that thing, that you've got to move it and hide it from me, you've told me you haven't settled the issue if this is really okay for you. And so I'm not here telling you right or wrong. What I'm telling you is you need to work that out with if Chris or whoever, if Jesus were to walk into this place, are you still okay participating in this? And do you think Jesus would put on his swimsuit and be with you? So you say that you believe certain things, but your behaviors show something different. And so please don't start hiding your stuff or whatever. But I'm just telling you, this is that whole thing. And so as a family, what we talk about here, that being a part of the family of God, that Jesus says, follow me. One of the things we do talk about is that our desires were Jesus-centered. More than Baptists, we are Jesus-centered. And so being Jesus-centered means Jesus says, follow me. And so what I would love to see, I think what the New Testament teaches is, as you follow Jesus, what does it look like for disciples of Jesus to follow him here at Second Baptist Church? And so the first core value for us, our family distinctive, is that we're Jesus-centered. We're going to even slough off if it's Baptist or whatever. We're going to ask the question, is it Jesus? So if there's some things that are maybe necessarily Baptist that aren't Jesus, because that sometimes happens, that's a man-made thing, then we're going to stick with Jesus. So we're going to be Jesus-centered. In fact, Paul even talks about that's the mystery of the gospel, is that we are in Jesus. That Jesus has entered into our life and that we are now, he is now in us through the Holy Spirit, and so that our life is centered in him. As a matter of fact, our vision here is to know Jesus and to make him known. Right, So that's our, our deal. We're, we're Jesus-centered crew. The next thing about us is that a distinctive of this family is that we want to have authentic, grace-filled relationships. Authentic, grace-filled relationships. And so that we can literally, we're, we're, the people look at us and say, hey, y'all are a bunch of hypocrites. And we can go, yes, we are. We are. We're, we're not perfect. We're hypocrites. And so our goal is, is that we, when we do life together well, We've removed our mask, which is a hypocrite. We're removing our mask, and we're authentic in that moment, saying, listen, here's who Chris is. Here's who we are, and we're authentic in that because we're in grace-filled relationships. We're offering grace to one another. Because, again, it says in the New Testament, we're to grow in grace. The longer that we live, the longer that we follow Jesus, the more we realize we need grace And that if we need more grace, then we need to offer more grace. That we haven't cleaned up, we haven't reached this place, that we don't need to be offering grace. As a matter of fact, we need to be realizing, hey, our posture probably should be a little bit more of the lowliest of servants and washing feet because we need as much grace as the next person. Authentic, grace-filled relationships. The other piece is that we want to be a part of a family here that there's life-transforming biblical teaching. there's, I'm not smart enough to every week come up with something unique and fun and exciting that we're going to base what we do on Scripture because I believe that Scripture is living and dynamic and it's a two-edged sword and it's going to transform. That if you listen to God's Word and you take it in and you apply it, it will change your life. And it will bring life to you that you will not have some of the stuff that you struggle with if you were to apply God's Word to your life. Life-transforming teaching. That's what we're going to be based on. Then also that we want to see you growing in your generosity. The embrace that we grow in generosity, that we're going to care for one another and and love for one another. Again, we're constantly growing in this thing and that we realize that, hey, you have skills and talents and you have opportunities 
to give things away. And that, that even this week, I was listening to a podcast, and he was talking about people don't, we don't have to teach kids the word mine. Right? We're kingdom-oriented. We, we're kingdom-oriented. So at two years of age, we realize this is my kingdom, and if you interfere in my kingdom and you take my toy, I'm going to let you know which we call that selfishness as adults. And we can laugh at it, but as adults, we do the same thing. We say, these are my toys. These is my money. This is my talents. This is my gifts. And instead of saying it's mine, what we should be saying is it's mine to share. The difference between mine and mine is radically different. To have an open-handedness with the things that God has given us to share, to grow in that generosity. Then also, we're to be a people that are on mission. The Great Commission and that Brianna talked about in Matthew chapter 28 is, Therefore, go. Not therefore, come and hang out here every Sunday and all that, but therefore, go. That we come here to be challenged, to be as a family, to spend time together, to be encouraged, to be sort. But we're to be centrifuged out of this place so that we can go to work, we can go to school, we can do the different things. Because we're a people on mission to accomplish the mission of God. And our mission is to therefore go and make disciples, to help people understand that to follow me isn't to follow Second Baptist Church, but it's to follow Jesus, to be on mission together. And then finally, one of the core values here is shared leadership, that each one of you are gifted and talented and, and all that, men and women. And so I don't know if you know this or not, but I've never experienced womanhood. So I'm not an expert on womanhood. And so at some point, we probably we might have some women that teach, that are gifted in teaching, and they'll be up here teaching. What does it mean to be a part of biblical womanhood? What does it mean to submit? What does it mean to be a, a, woman, a godly woman and all those different things? Because I haven't experienced it, and so I can't give you that perspective. But God has gifted women to be able to do some things, and, and just as equally as well as myself. And so they can share with you those things. And so as a church family, as men and women and children are raised up, we don't look at gender as much as we looked at giftedness. And how is the Spirit of God gifted you to do what He wants you to do? That that is the New Testament family. Because at our house, it's equal. I get to pay the bills sometimes. My wife gets to pay the bills sometimes. We kind of go back and forth on doing different things. as shared leadership. That's what a family looks like. What does it look like for us as a family to think, but then also part of that embrace is to feel. One of the beautiful things about being in the position that I'm in is to get to hear the stories of different people, of how they're just moved by someone's need and they respond to it. So a lot of times this happens at Christmas, you know, we'll, someone will hear from different people within our community or in the community at large that we have a relationship with in some way. And someone will say, hey, we need, we'd love to be able to do something for our children, but we're not going to be able to do that. And so we'll pass that word along and inevitably it's more than even what is needed, the generosity of people. And when someone says, hey, I, you know, my car's broken down, you have you know, a single lady or something, and so she doesn't know those kind of things, and so they bring it to me, and I'm like, hmm, I kicked the tire, and like, let's call these other guys. And, and inevitably, more than what is needed, generosity takes place. And that is what the community is looking at as large, is how do we respond and love one another? Are we sympathetic? Are we compassionate? Are we humble enough to step into other people's stuff to serve them without even expecting anything back. 
But that's the beauty. Because listen, we can never pay back Jesus what he's given us. We can never pay it back. He was sympathetic. He jumped into our situation. He was compassionate. And he washed the feet of us in our mess, in our dung, stanky feet, and said, I love you. And he says, as a family, follow me. Would you look like that? Because the world is crying out for a family like that. As imperfect as we are, people are watching and want to be a part of a family that can be sympathetic and compassionate and humble and serve one another and love each other in a way that we're willing to jump into the mess of people's lives and embrace it for as long as we need to embrace it. So that healing can take place. So that new life can happen. That's our call. Belong, receive, embrace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for embracing us. For holding on to us dearly. In our desperation, you have clung to us. And, Father, you continue to cling to us. And you say in your word, you will not let us go. Even when we want to let you go, you will not let us go. Father, may we embrace as best we can like that. As a community of people that are pursuing, following you, may we embrace those that need embracing. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.